Foster calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona! I don't believe it! Well led by York, fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole for Dwight York. Fantastic goal for Manchester United. Can Manchester United score? They always score. Gage with a shot! Welcome to episode 40 of the Red Devil Talk podcast. This morning I'm delighted to be joined by another fantastic guest. This lady has 38 world titles, 14 Paralympic gold medals and a world record breaker on 76 occasions. It is of course Sarah's story. Sarah, thanks for taking the call. Oh, it's great to, great to be on the podcast. Thanks very much. How are you finding lockdown and the challenge of homeschooling? Yeah, I think this lockdown three is definitely a lot harder than the first lockdown. Obviously, lockdown two, the schools are still open. Um, the weather doesn't help. I'd either rather be completely snowed in or beautiful sunshine. So that bit in between that we've had for most of January um, makes life more difficult, I think. And I've been training entirely on the turbo apart from one session last Friday. So it does feel kind of like you're just moving from room to room in your house and not getting outside. And some days I have to remind myself at like five o'clock, I've not been out. Um, so yeah, I think it's a lot harder, but I'm trying to keep my spirits up. We haven't actually got that long till the games are hopefully going ahead in Tokyo. So it certainly helps focus. I want to ask you a little bit more about motherhood. How did becoming a mother impact your life in terms of your sporting career? And what I mean by that is, did it add a newfound perspective into life of what's important or... Yeah, I think any parent will be able to reflect on how, you know, the things that were important to you before you had children um, just change this kind of this slight shift. Um, suddenly as an athlete, sleep is, you know, the one thing that changes massively because you're always told you have to sleep a lot. But I think there's a huge psychology behind that as well. And if you're losing sleep for a reason that you really don't mind, like your own children needing you, um, that's quite different to losing sleep because you're horrendously nervous before an event. So that's one of the kind of biggest changes. And I think also, you know, it's not a matter of life or death or sporting performance. So long as you give your best and you can kind of follow through the processes and make sure that you've done everything ticks off your list, as it were, then, you know, the outcome that the children are pleased to see you regardless. Obviously, it helps if there's a medal ceremony they can cheer at, but it doesn't, you know, it's not the be all and end all. So I think that means that you have a lot less pressure. And then, if, you know, I found it's kind of helped me perform even better. You touched on sleep there, which of course is crucial to a high-performing athlete. Do you have any tips or anything you tap into for your sleep practice? Um, I think, um, as any new parent will know, you know, sleep is not um, a constant. There's no kind of routine to it, especially with young children. And even as they get into school age and, and their life changes, I mean, lockdown, parents will be able to reflect on the fact that potentially their children's sleep has changed in lockdown. For some, it's changed for the better because they've had a lot more parental attention and they haven't had to move around so much. And it's been more on their terms because they've had choice around, you know, going out and um, having a little walk or playing at home. Um, whereas normally it's kind of like, right, you're not, you're not ready on time. Come on, come on, come on. Um, or, or it might be that lockdown has changed their world to, to such an extent that they feel really stressed. And so they've ended up, you know, sleeping a lot worse. But I think, you know, you have to reflect on how you can um, recover without needing to be fully asleep. So just taking time to relax. You know, if you're feeding a baby like I was for a long time, um, you know, night feeds, just relaxing and allowing yourself to recover without being asleep. 
um, it's possible to kind of repair your body. Um, and I think there's a psychological element to it as well. And sometimes you do just need to ask for help. I think it's fair to say your records and achievements speak for themselves, Sarah. What do you think the secret was to your sustained success, your longevity over such a period of time? Um, I think I've been really fortunate to have an incredible grounding with my parents who've always taught me to focus on my, you know, my own performance and the things I could control. And that really, you know, sort of works incredibly well when you get to the highest level because you can't control what other people are doing. You can't control those external forces. You have to focus on what you are able to do. And that almost becomes even more important when you have that pressure upon you and other, other people's expectations. Um, you know, the press and the media love to talk about what might happen. You know, we, we hear about it a lot in football. We kind of, you know, listen to pundits about the game, the form, the likelihood of people score on a goal, goal scoring, um, you know, uh, rampage in the previous game. Will that form hold and all of these things? And, you know, it's easy to kind of look at that and think, oh, they're talking about me and will that happen? And I guess I experienced it for the first time in 96 when I was um, 18 years old going into my second games, already having had one, two gold medals as a 14 year old. And suddenly the, the spotlight was on me as a, you know, is she still a teenage wonder kid or, you know, has that aging process already started because swimmers do tend to be quite young. Um, and I think being able to block that out and focus on what I enjoy is the really, really important part. And so, you know, I, I've never had any regrets. I've, I've never sacrificed anything for sport. It's always been my choice. And I think doing things on your own terms helps with that longevity and that motivation to do it because you enjoy it. And now, of course, with the children, um, you know, they really enjoy that journey, too. So seeing their delight, um, you know, really boosts my morale, even when it's you know, not going as well as you'd like it to. Fantastic. As a young athlete, who were the people you drew inspiration from? Who did you want to emulate? Well, my very first kind of heroine, if you like, was Sarah Hardcastle. She was a 15-year-old in 1984 at the Olympics in Los Angeles. We had the same name. I was six years old, so I was very drawn to someone with the same name, doing incredible things in a swimming pool. Um, and I just loved watching sport in general. I, I watched all the athletics and swimming that was on the, the TV at that point. And um, I was just completely immersed whenever the Olympic Games were on TV, because, of course, the Paralympics was never on television until you know, we started to see a little bit creeping into the coverage of 1992 and onwards. And I just wanted to try and emulate them to know what it would feel like to stand on the rostrum and, and receive a medal, hopefully a gold medal, if, if I'd been you know, successful enough. Um, so I, I think I kind of drew inspiration from a lot of different athletes. Of course, famously, you switched from swimming to cycling. It was a successful transition. You won gold medals at the European Championship. You've broken world records. Can you talk me through the transition? Why cycling? Well, I was feel really fortunate. Um, I didn't actually have to retire from swimming. I was introduced into cycling because my ear infections prevented me from training. But fortunately, I eventually saw those ear infections through and got back into the pool. And then by that point, I'd already been competing on a bike and I'd broken a world record in the velodrome. And so it was genuinely my choice, which I feel very grateful for. Um, I did decide to move sports because as a swimmer, I was approaching my 27th birthday, I think. Um, and that was considered to be old uh, in swimming terms. Um, so I thought, well, if I want to continue to be an athlete and this is an, you know, an unexpected opportunity, then you know, trying and, and moving out of my comfort zone seemed like a good risk to take. So I did one more competition as a swimmer uh, and got back to kind of world, world record level um, and kind of bowed out at the top and feel really fortunate from having that. 
and then it was a matter of kind of learning this new skill very technical in cycling especially road cycling but even just learning how to ride successfully quickly on the velodrome on the black line and um, the bankings want to push you out so that you turn right up the track um, so yeah, there, there was a, a fast tracking of my technical ability, I suppose you could say, uh, and then a kind of reinforcement of my physiological capabilities uh, and moving from, you know, my longest event in the pool was like five minutes to events that could take three, maybe even four hours long. That was also a huge learning curve and something that I had to pay particular attention to from a dietary perspective. You mentioned the notion of skill there, something I'm fascinated by. You did improve your skill set at cycling at a rapid pace. In terms of skill acquisition, you know, traditionally, there's been two explanations that have been offered as to why people learn quicker, how they learn quicker, why they learn skills faster. Maybe it's something they have that's different. Maybe they have better memory, retention skills. Maybe they do something differently, how they practice. Maybe they identify a gap in their skill set and work to enhance that. Which side of the coin do you stand on? Um, I think that... Uh you have to have a kind of a, a, an opportunity naturally to kind of concentrate perhaps on being able to um, identify what you need to do next. So maybe there's a, an innate ability to kind of feel your way through a skill learning process. I also think that um, having good concentration also helps because you can spend longer doing something before your brain wanders or is, isn't able to cope with that level of um, intensity in terms of learning that new skill. But also I think there's a sense of taking responsibility uh, and not taking things too personally. So whether you're kind of overly emotive about things or quite logical, I think that also can help. Uh, and I've always been the sort of person that takes constructive criticism and, uh, and mulls it over and works it out and tries to come out with a solution to improve things. And I think about, you know, for example, in, in cycling, you have to be in an aerodynamic position. Um, and I was completely unaerodynamic for a very long time because I was used to being streamlined. Now, streamlined is a long, thin piece of person in a swimming pool, and aerodynamics is a little ball of a person on a bike. So two vastly different positions that my body needed to train to get used to at the same time as losing muscle mass in my upper body. Um, I'm 12 centimeters narrower now as a cyclist than I was as a swimmer, very um, triangular shaped. So I think it's kind of taking all that, those pieces of information and piecing them together to find the best path and then being able to kind of look at that and say, okay, it's not working in this direction and not being afraid to change paths. And so um, I think you have to kind of take your own personal emotion out of it sometimes in order to kind of just crack on. But I do think you need to have that capabilities of, of concentration, which I know that, it, you know, is probably an, an innate ability. In terms of athletes and performance, another thing that I'm interested in is this idea of the panic zone, whereby athletes experience really high levels of stress, either pre-performance or during performance. But to flip that, do you think there are any upsides of stress in terms of performance or do you think the panic zone should be avoided at all costs? I think it's how you perceive the panic zone that's the most important part. If you can utilize that as um, a tool in order to perform better, recognize that nerves are good, you need adrenaline, you know, you need that fight flight in order to be able to make um, your body move further and faster. You need to be able to suffer more than the next person, especially in road cycling, going uphill. Um, if you're running around a football pitch, you look at some of the distances covered and the capabilities of dipping in and out of you know, very, very high 
um, intensity over lactate threshold uh, and being able to recover at a higher intensity than other people as well. And that takes a mental strength. And I think it's your ability to, to kind of look at your own mental strengths and see things as positives. Um, and we talk about, um, you know, the three parts of the brain and the emotive part of the brain getting in the way. And if you think something's a problem and you, you dwell on that and you're overly emotional about how much you are panicking rather than saying, no, this is normal. This is natural. I need these nerves. I know what I'm doing. I have been, you know, through this process in training you know, hundreds and hundreds of times, whether that's, you know, a free kick, whether that's a, you know, a conversion kick in rugby, whether that's a standing start on the velodrome, you know, whether that's a descent that you've, you know, practiced and practiced because of course recce's, you know, everything that you do as an athlete is towards that performance on, on, on competition day, on race day. And so you have to kind of look at the logical process as to why you're feeling the way you're feeling and channel that positively. I guess if you didn't have some level of stress, you'd be bored. There'd be no challenge. But I think for a high-performing athlete, you know, it's the, the challenge is exciting. Your performances will be flat then without that energy, I think. Absolutely. And, and you know, stress and, and the unknown is part of the, you know, what draws you to do what you do. Part of the thrill of winning is that, you know, that relief, that sense of, yes, it worked. You know, that's one of the very first emotions you feel when you cross the line and it has worked. And then there's obviously, if it doesn't work, there's that initial sense of dread. But then I think if you're motivated to continue to try and, you know, um, overcome that particular challenge, the next question and how quickly you remove the dread feeling is, well, how can I do it better next time? And those things are the things that I think elite athletes thrive on. And from what I gather from people who have, you know, um, hung up their race wheels or boots or whatever, have said, you know, it was no longer an interest to me to find out how to do it better. I was ready to move on to something different. And, you know, I've not, not found that, you know, feeling yet. I want to ask you about imagery. I suppose this idea that high performing athletes can manipulate their thoughts to kind of positively create visions of themselves on the podium or receiving their gold medal. Is imagery something you've tapped into? Yeah, but I think I use imagery for part of the process um, rather than the outcome goal, because I think, you know, the outcome goal is something everyone can dream about um, when you allow yourself to be sort of frivolous and think about the idea that you might one day stand on the podium. But the process and, and utilizing visualization and those mental um, skills is also really important. And I like to do them in conjunction with the physical um, training because you never ever use your mental strength um, in isolation um, on race day. It's always at the same time as a performance. And for me, that performance starts when you wake up in the morning and the, the choices that you make prior to the event actually starting whether that's the clock you know ticking away on a stopwatch or the the first whistle being blown um for, for a game um so you start that performance before the the actual you know physical um game starts or, or, or race um and so I, it's about having those mental um, abilities alongside all of the physical things that you have to do so if i'm climbing a hill i'm doing specific efforts in training then at the same time, I'm practicing the mental skills that I'm going to need in order to make good decisions under pressure. And I know that's something that, you know, Sir Clive Woodward spoke about um, just after the, the boys won the Rugby World Cup in 2003, that process of having been through all the likely scenarios so that when it comes to you in a game situation, you can think correctly in that pressured environment. Hi, this is Ken Hardy, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. This podcast is brought to you in association with Classic Retro Shirts. Classic Retro Shirts sell a large variety of retro jerseys from a number of clubs and countries and are very prominent on Manchester United. United season ticket holders themselves giving fans a chance to look back through history. 
Classic Retro shirts are on Instagram at Classic Retros 2, or you can visit their website at classicretros.co.uk. To get a £10 discount off your purchase, you can use the code RDT10 at the checkout on the website, or you can send the code via direct message to their Instagram. Classic Retro Shirts. I know something you're really passionate about is promoting women's sport exposure. I want to ask you from your own perspective, does it frustrate you that your world title wins weren't televised? I think it would be easy to be frustrated and allow that to sort of eat away to you. You know, sport has to, um, you know, evolve and, and has to kind of go through a process. Um, we didn't always see all of the sport we see on TV now instantly. You know, it wasn't an overnight change. And so I think we're still on a journey. I feel like in Parasport, we're a little bit stuck on our journey since 2012. We haven't really improved the, um, you know, the coverage between games. Um, we have a Paralympic broadcaster that pops up every four years, but there's no requirement to do anything in between and it's not sought. Um, so events aren't kind of, you know, promoted particularly well. The national governing bodies do a great job. The international federations trying to kind of promote that around their kind of business model for, for, for world championships. So, yeah, there, there is a collective responsibility, I think, from the media and, um, you know, from sponsorship and sponsorship of events to try and find a way to bring those stories to people's screens, whether that's through streaming or whether that's, you know, mainstream TV channels, in order to allow those people who will take inspiration from that and just general, you know, life. So I have actually had a question. Have you raced in the last four years? Uh, and that's really strange, but it's largely because it, it's never been on telly. And I think for some athletes, it'd be really strange to think that you wouldn't be seen. Um, most of the events I've done that have been televised have not been in Parasport. They've been in, you know, the women's peloton because I've competed alongside my Parasport events within women's cycling. Um, and I think that's just really strange. But, you know, from a football perspective, the idea that you would not get televised in between World Cups. That's, that's the analogy that's happening to Parasport athletes all the time. And so it's how we find a way to bring the finance into the sport to enable it to be televised. We need to have return on investment for sponsors, but we can't get sponsorship without that return on investment being there. So it's a vicious circle and it's difficult to know which part breaks. Um, but I think it's actually putting it on TV that, or giving that coverage that would break the cycle first because that would then you know, um, draw in the investment. I find that so strange. I just want to stay with that for a minute, if that's okay. Mm. I guess in terms of your effort to achieve this more exposure for women's sport, what have been some of the most common barriers you faced in terms of changing the attitude to how women's sport is perceived? Well, I think women's sport and para sport have kind of a parallel journey. Um, and a lot of the, the challenges around perceptions of the people um, who are currently watching the men's version of the sport uh, and they come up with reasonings as to why the women's um, game or the women's part of the sport or the para sport is not you know, televised. It's an economic um, decision in their, you know, in their eyes. It's entirely economic because it's not as interesting. It's not as exciting. It's not as fast or, you know, and, and people are looking at, for some people, they're looking at para sport from more of a, you know, a pity perspective. They don't see the athletes like, oh, aren't they doing well? And that's been a, you know, it, it's got less and less. It was it's a huge um, kind of talking point when I first came into the sport. Never accept someone telling you that you're brave and courageous because you're someone with a disability who's managing to do sport, which was part of an attitude that was around in the 80s and 90s. And I think that kind of has changed and moved away. But there is still that idea that for some reason, 
men's sport is is superior um, and I think the sports that are getting it right are starting to change that um, but I think it's just the fact that you know in para sport and women's sport we just have to wait to move the time along you know women's sport hasn't had all of the events um, you know you look in my lifetime it was the um, on the on the track and field the steeplechase the women didn't do the steeplechase and that was included the women didn't do the marathon and um, the 1500 meters in the swimming pool the women still don't do the same distance events on a bike so there's all of those other parts uh, and i know in tennis it's about the sets the number of sets that they play so i think it's about moving those things along um, and then from a football perspective could you ever get a situation where the men's game and the women's game was in the same stadium you know with an hour's gap in between for people to go and have a drink and a chat and then come back and watch game two um, so all of those ideas of how you make it more inclusive and bring it together to be just one spectacle um, because having come from swimming other than the fact that the distances were slightly different at the very very top end of the distance measurement from 800 meters to 1500 meters um, the men and women just alternated so it was a completely equal sport from a gender perspective uh, and it's quite strange going into cycling then and seeing that that wasn't always the case and we still don't have a women's tour de france and we're working towards the stepping stones of getting that um, but having had it into up until the point of the 1980s um, it's almost like we've had 20 30 years of backward view um, and now we need to get back to the the equality that was there previously and somehow lost even if you consider the punditry on sky sports traditionally it's been dominated by men now, I know recently they've, they've added Alex Scott to the panel, who I think is brilliant. I see the criticism she gets on Twitter because she's a female. What would she know? She's a female. I think it's nonsense, personally. I look at Laura Woods. Personally, I think she's the best broadcaster around at the moment in terms of sport. So I think this idea that maybe she got there because she's brave or she's courageous <laughs> is nonsense. She's there because of hard work. She is the best at her job. That's exactly right. It's about being the best at your job. And the idea that you can't have women commenting on men's sport or because men men have commented on women's sport forever uh, and is that because they've got superior knowledge no it's not it's just because that's the way it was for a long time um, and i think we still have this slight challenge in cycling that we don't generally have female commentators there are a few um commenting um commentating on the men's races but not so many and a big deal is made if a female um sports director takes you know the wheel of a, of a team car behind the men's race um, but we need to see more of that. We need to see more um, of just the acceptance. And I think, you know, there was, um, I can't remember the name of the lady that was being interviewed. We were talking about um, going from Chelsea to AFC Wimbledon and saying, we've got to stop thinking that it's um, a step down to move into women's sport. It's not, it's a step across. It's a different type of opportunity with a different type of people. Um, and, but the same drive, the same determination, the same skill set just playing a game in a different way and you're not going to have mixed teams because of the physical difference between a male and a female body and that's why the sport is separate and it has to be that like for safety reasons um above all else but it's really important that we just see sport for sports um for what it is and and that's the same in para sport you know it's sport first and the circumstances of how that person has arrived at that classification or why they're you know competing with that type of equipment whether that's um you know a prosthetic or a wheelchair that's kind of part of the backstory but it's not you know the, the forefront of what we should be looking at when we're focusing on the performance of the person i know you're a big united fan sarah uh, obviously you got to present your your medal at old trafford your gold medal can you tell me about that day that must have been as a as a red it must have been surreal 
Yeah, it was absolutely incredible when we got the letter saying, would you like to come on the pitch at half time, you know, be in the director's box and then came down onto the pitch. And, you know, the roar of that crowd, it kind of took us back to the roar in the stadium. Um, but obviously there was, what, 75,000 people, not just the, the 10,000 people of Brands Hatch. So absolutely amazing. Um, and, and yeah, just such a privilege to be able to kind of share that. And, and the number of messages from people who were in the stadium, you know, on, on social media and, you, you know, Social media can be a horrible place at times, but on days like that, it was, uh, you know, I got immense, immense pride being able to kind of share that and, you know, just wave and thank the people who'd been watching and cheering from home. Who was the big influence in your life in terms of starting to support United? Well, when I um, uh, went, finished university, I went to a swimming club that had been previously called Manchester United Salford. And I'd always kind of followed the Reds as, a, as you know, via my brother, who was a big football boy. Um, he's five years younger. But then when I got to uh, Man United Salford, which was then called City of Salford, um, everyone was still kind of in the throes of having been once called Man United Salford. So the whole squad was, you know, United supporters. And we used to watch games together in between swim sessions or we'd go occasionally get tickets and go to the match. And then friends of mine um, had already got season tickets and I used to visit with them occasionally. And then I had the opportunity to get a couple of tickets. Um, and when I first met Barney, I'd already got the season tickets. Um, and when, he, when I told him I was a season ticket holder at Old Trafford, he almost proposed on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess it was just that, um, you know, my late, my late teens, early 20s, getting to live. And I lived about, you know, two or three miles from the ground in Eccles and used to be able to get there really easily. So it was a great fun thing to do. Um, and you know, just in between training. Every man's dream, meeting a red. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. What are your thoughts on the current team? I know you're very busy. Do you get to watch the team much nowadays? I don't get to watch the team as often as I would like, but it's fantastic to see, you know, that the... the uh, the female side of the team is obviously flourishing and Casey Stoney is doing a fantastic job and they're moving up and, um, you know, rapid progress. Uh, and then obviously seeing Ollie come in um, on the men's side of the game, having, I, I, I vividly remember where I was in a pylon when, you know, he scored the winning goal um, for the treble. I was just like singing the songs when he was a player. And um, so when he became the manager, I was just like, I've got goosebumps thinking about him because he's just such a, a red, you know, he's just such an icon. And um, yeah, there's obviously ups and downs for every team, but it's so heartening to see the development path that's happening. You know, probably we'd say led by Marcus Rashford for, for things he's doing off the pitch as well. But seeing people come through that um, academy, it, it kind of, it mirrors what happened in the 90s um, with the famous class of 92. And being able to see that potentially happen again is really, really exciting. Um, and I think they're obviously doing well. They've had some good games and I, I watched the Southampton game. That was one I managed to watch. So maybe I'm a lucky charm. I don't know. But yeah, it's exciting to see them. And when people make good decisions and know where they've made mistakes and then can move forwards from that, I think that's what any kind of sports fan would like to see. I couldn't agree more. It is very exciting. I just hope that the fans are rational and think and consider that this is going to take time. This is not an overnight thing. I also think he's created an environment where mistakes are accepted is maybe the wrong word for people listening, but you shouldn't be playing in fear, which I think under Mourinho, I think they are playing under fear. The big question on this podcast, I love the diverse answers I get. What do you feel are some of the most key factors in achieving high performance? I think the key factors are being a logical thinker and being able to take responsibility for your performances and being able to think outside the box and not be afraid to change a plan if it needs changing. Final question. I want to finish on a lighter note. If you had 30 minutes, Sarah, 
to have a conversation with someone. This person can be from history, can be dead or alive. It can be an athlete, a poet, a singer. If you had 30 minutes to have a conversation with this person, who would it be and why? Well, as I'm on a Red podcast, I think I'd choose Sir Alex. Um, just to kind of find out a little bit more. I've read his book and just to find out a little bit more about his magic because I think that's probably why we need the fans to be more rational now because they were spoiled for a long time um, with just success after success. Um, and so, yeah, he, he obviously came through with some difficult times as well. Um, so to learn from those would be absolutely incredible. Brilliant. Sarah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. It was lovely to meet you. Thank you ever so much. It was a brilliant break from my assignments and my college stress. So thanks again. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Red Devil Talk. We hope you enjoyed our latest episode. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Red Devil Talk. If you listen on an Apple device, please consider leaving a review and a five-star rating. If you have any questions or comments or want more information on Red Devil Talk podcasts, you can get in touch via email at reddevilTalkMedia at gmail.com. The Red Devil Talk podcasts are a Red Devil Talk Media production.